This is a Scream Queen production. Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to So Dead. I'm your host, Jen Carpenter. Happy True Crime Tuesday. It is time for the penultimate episode of season three, which is just a fancy way of saying that it is the second to last episode of this season. It is officially November as well, so it's getting cold out there. Well, it's getting cold out there in Michigan, at least. So today, we're going to talk about some cold cases from my hometown of Lansing, Michigan. A case is considered cold when it has gone unsolved for more than a year. Once upon a time, I would have been able to give you an exact number of the cold cases in Lansing because the Lansing Police Department used to keep a list right on their website. That list seems to have disappeared within the last few years here. If you remember really early back in season one, Danny and I did an episode with the gals from the Girlfriends Happy Hour podcast where we each covered the unsolved murder of a Lansing area woman. And that cold case list was on their website back in 2019 when we did those episodes, but it's gone now. Also, that list was only cases within the Lansing Police Department's jurisdiction. There are several neighborhoods with Lansing addresses that technically fall under the jurisdiction of Eaton County, Ingham County, or Clinton County Sheriff's Departments. So any unsolved cases from those areas that are Lansing addresses but not Lansing Police Department, those wouldn't have been on that list. So it's not a, like a completely accurate list anyway. Uh, and as far as I can find, none of those county sheriff's departments have public lists of unsolved cases that can be accessed. And then what's, you know, like what's the Lansing area? Just Lansing addresses or do we rope in our suburbs? Holt, Grand Ledge, do it. Also, there are definitely some cases that are considered solved, written off as suicides or accidents that were probably something else. So cold cases in the area, the limit does not exist. <laughs> We're going to talk about some of them today anyway. And trust me when I tell you, if you've never trusted me before, this is the time to do it. You want to listen all the way through to the end of today's episode because the last story is wild with a capital everything. Okay? Okay. According to the Lansing State Journal, the Lansing Police Department has at least 75 unsolved murders on their books, and all of those cold cases are the responsibility of one detective. One. Lately, there has been a push to expand the cold case unit, which, let's be real here, Lansing does not have a cold case unit. They have a cold case detective. So that's in talks for next year's budget, I guess, to expand the whole department. They did get a $10,000 grant earlier this year to help fund cold case investigations, maybe like 
test or retest some DNA with some of that money. Um, You know, familial DNA is really changing the game when it comes to solving cold cases. If you're not familiar, I'm, I'm sure you all are, but familial DNA is, you know, you get a 23andMe or an Ancestry DNA kit for Christmas. Those companies specifically, they protect your information. So you spit into a little vial, you send it in, they give you a bunch of results and a bunch of people you're randomly related to, and that's all confidential. However, you can take that DNA profile that they give you and upload it to a site like GEDmatch, um, G-E-D. There are tons of tutorials online about how to do that, how to upload the information. And GEDmatch is a public database that law enforcement officials use to check for matches to DNA evidence that they've been keeping on ICE. And, you know, you're not a killer, obviously, at least I hope you're not. So you're probably thinking nothing of making your DNA profile public for the sake of, you know, finding lost relatives, building your family tree, all of that. But maybe like that sketchy second cousin on mom's side or the creepy great great uncle from dad's side has some skeletons in the closet and your DNA can help unlock them. So this is my plea to you before we get into this episode. If you've ever done or ever do an Ancestry DNA or 23andMe kit, upload your results to GEDmatch when you get them. Your saliva might hold the answers to an unsolved crime. You just never know. Today's episode of So Dead is sponsored by BetterHelp. That is Better H-E-L-P, help. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? I've made no secret of the fact that I struggle with anxiety, so I know firsthand how difficult it can be to just get through the day-to-day sometimes, and nobody should have to live like that. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in a lot of areas. BetterHelp is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room like you do with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily by real clients of the service. Visit BetterHelp.com slash SoDead. Again, that's Better H-E-L-P. And join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. SoDead listeners get a special offer, 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash SoDead. All right, let's get into today's stories. We're going to start with the oldest cold case on the Lansing Police Department's records, the murder of real estate mogul Everett Marlette. Everett Marlette owned a real estate company that owned buildings all over the city of Lansing. Office buildings, restaurants, retail spaces, houses. 
His personal home was known as Marlette Manor, and that was located at 3519 Cedar Street in South Lansing, which today is home to the collectible shop Cards in the Corner. I used to take my son there when he was little. I'm pretty sure it was in a different location, but the building it's in now, 3519 South Cedar, is the same building that actually was Marlette Manor. Everett Marlette lived there. He owned a popular restaurant next door called The Cottage Inn, which is not to be confused with the Cottage Inn pizza that we have here locally now. This was like its own little local spot. In 1946, Marlette Manor became a boarding house of sorts. It had eight rooms on the second floor that were opened up to accommodate uh, traveling workers, transients, people coming into work for a short time, didn't need to rent an apartment, but needed a little bit more than a hotel room, and he provided boarding rooms for that. The rooms were cheap, they were small, but they were well furnished. There was a nice lobby and a common area on the first floor, which is where Everett lived. And I mean, that like that was a pretty cool thing to do. Most wealthy businessmen wouldn't turn their personal homes into a quick stop, for traveling salesmen, uh, but Everett Marlette did. In 1963, Everett Marlette was 59 years old. He and his wife, Lulu, had two adult daughters and two grandchildren. The real estate business was going well. Marlette had listings in the paper every day for buildings that he owned that were available for rent or sale. Marlette Manor was still going strong. Um, It was open going on 20 years at this point. Everything was good. On April 19th, 1963, which was a Friday, Everett Marlette spent the day at a real estate conference in Bay City. He hadn't returned by 5 o'clock when his office closed for the day, so his secretary locked up, and then she and her parents drove Everett's wife and daughter to the train station because uh, Mrs. Marlette and their daughter were getting ready to go on a two-week vacation to California. They'd been hoping to see Everett before they left. The plan was that he was supposed to take them to the train station, but just in case he was late, they had a plan B. Ruth Strickland was a neighbor and employee of Everett Marlette's. She lived just a couple doors down from him at 3523 South Cedar, and she was responsible for cleaning Marlette Manor daily. At around 8 o'clock on the night of April 19th, she realized that the outdoor lights and signs at Marlette Manor hadn't been turned on. So she went over, she turned them on, she passed through the dining room, the living room, and a few more common areas of the house. She didn't notice anything amiss. She didn't see Mr. Marlette or any sign that he'd returned from his business trip yet. So she just turned on the lights and went back home. But about 45 minutes later, she got a bad feeling. She had a premonition that something was wrong, so she went back over to check on things, and everything had changed. In the dining room, she found Everett Marlette's bullet-riddled body slumped against the wall, his pockets turned inside out. His wallet was empty, and his prized diamond ring, worth several thousand dollars, was missing. So Ruth did what any of us would do. She ran to the phone and called... Everett's physician. (laughs) The doctor shows up and is like, ma'am, what would you like me to do about this clearly deceased body full of bullet holes? So he calls the police. Everett Merlette had been shot several times at point blank range by a 38 caliber revolver sometime between 8 p.m. when Ruth Strickland entered the house to turn the outside lights on and 8.45 p.m. when she returned and found Everett's body. Nobody heard the shots or saw anything suspicious, not even the tenants staying upstairs. 
many of whom were home at the time of the murder. There were no signs of a struggle or forced entry. Everett's wife and daughter were on a train on their way to California. Uh, In fact, a call went out to the train stations, and so when their train stopped in Iowa, they were removed by police, informed of Everett's death, and they were questioned. Those who knew Everett Marlette were quickly ruled out as suspects. The motive obviously appeared to be robbery, but aside from that, the police had nothing. And nearly 60 years later, they still have nothing, which DNA evidence was not a thing yet in the 60s, so they weren't going to find the killer that way. But it surprises me a little bit that that ring that was stolen was never found. It supposedly had a very distinct design. It was worth over $7,000 in 1963, That's over $60,000 in today's money. So just imagine a $60,000 men's diamond ring that the owner, a well-known local businessman, wore everywhere he went. I feel like that would be pretty easily identifiable, like wherever that got pawned or sold or whatever. That's a piece that people were going to remember. So it's very unlikely that the murder of Everett Marlette will ever be solved. If his killer was any older than, you know, 30 years old at the time of the murder, there's a good chance they're no longer living. But that ring, which I couldn't find a photo of anywhere, and that doesn't make sense because I feel like the ring is the key and there should have been pictures of it in the newspaper, but there weren't. At least I didn't find them if there were. The ring. I feel like if that is still out there somewhere, that is the only way that Lansing's oldest cold case might ever be solved. Now, the murder of Everett Marlette is the Lansing Police Department's oldest cold case, but it's not the oldest cold case in the Lansing area, like we talked about at the beginning. That would be the July 22nd, 1920 murder of 12-year-old Beatrice Hickox near Potterville. The Hickox family owned a prominent farm on the outskirts of Potterville, where Beatrice lived with her parents and her brother, Russell, who was three years her senior. The Hickox family was known as a successful, well-liked family. Russell and Beatrice were polite and well-behaved kids, if not a bit shy and withdrawn. They were both on the small side, with Russell later described as flimsy, which is super fucking rude, but an important detail that we'll get back to later. On the afternoon of July 22nd, 1920, Beatrice was sent to the field where her brother was working to take him some water. A short time later, a neighbor farmer encountered Russell on the street, frantic, sweating, and out of breath. He was crying, yelling incoherently. The only words the neighbor could make out were, Beatrice is dead. According to Russell, Beatrice met him in the field, handed him a jug of water, they talked for a minute, then she turned to go back toward home, and he turned in the opposite direction to continue working. Uh, When he reached the end of the row he was on, he turned to start a new row heading back toward the farm, and that's when he saw a large man who looked foreign running through the field toward the woods. This was the direct quote from a 1920s newspaper, so yeah, no. Um, This concerned Russell because this was all Hickox land. There was no reason for anyone else to be on it, and the man appeared to be running away from the direction that Beatrice would have been going to get back home. So Russell ran in that direction, the one that Beatrice, you know, would have taken to get back to the house, and within a couple of minutes, he came upon her mangled body lying in the cornfield. 
She'd been strangled and bludgeoned with a 24-pound rock, 24-pound rock, which was still covered in blood. News of the murder spread quickly, and soon the crime scene was being trampled by spectators. This was over 100 years ago. This is why I laugh. Laugh, I say, when I'm asked all the time where this new fascination with true crime is coming from. It's always been here, honey. It's not new. It's just now becoming socially acceptable. And there's a difference. Anyway, by the time police arrived, there were too many footprints and fingerprints and whatnot to salvage any sort of evidence from the scene. A Lansing State Journal reporter had to wrestle the rock that was used to bludgeon Beatrice to death away from a looky-loo who was trying to steal it because the reporter knew that the police would probably need it for evidence. So by the time the police got it, it already had multiple other sets of fingerprints on it. As police were working the scene, Mrs. Clifford Starkweather, who was working as a cook for a nearby road gang, which... It specifically used the term road gang, so I don't know if that meant that it was like a a prison gang working on the roads or just like a road crew. I don't know. I don't know. It was 1920. It was all wild. Um, She was cooking for a road crew, and a foreign-looking man accosted her demanding food. She pulled out her trusty rifle that she kept behind the counter, and she shooed him away, but Two sightings within a couple miles of this foreign-looking man, uh, and police were stoked. They had a witness that could identify him when they caught him. About the catching him. (laughs) Very quickly, a posse of about 500 law enforcement officials, farmers, business owners, and other locals outfitted with firearms and literal pitchforks, like they actually had pitchforks, surrounded the swamp on the Hickox property, sure that that was where the killer was hiding. A suspect soon emerged. Police agencies across the country were actively searching for a convicted murderer who'd escaped Jackson State Prison. And he sort of fit the description that had been given by Russell Hickox. So when they showed Mrs. Starkweather his mugshot, she was like, oh yeah, that's the man. That's the guy that tried to attack me. So locals were sure this was their guy. And they were glad because this would just wrap it all up with like a nice tidy bow, right? But Jackson prison officials cautioned Eaton County about giving up their search. It was their belief that their escaped prisoner had long since left the state, if not the country. So they didn't think he was the guy. A few days after the murder, Eaton County took another man into custody simply because he fit the description of a tall, hefty, bearded, foreign-looking guy. Oddly, though, as soon as he was in custody, he shaved off his beard, which that was the thing. The guy supposedly had a big, big old beard and he gets behind bars and he knows that, you know, people are going to be coming to identify him and he shaved off his fucking beard. So the police weren't playing that game. They kept him in custody for over a month waiting for his beard to grow back before they had Mrs. Starkweather try to identify him. And again, she did. She was like, oh, yep, that's the guy. That's definitely the guy. She actually positively identified every suspect that they brought in front of her. And it quickly became apparent that she was not a reliable witness. In fact, it later came out that this encounter she had with this strange man demanding food from her had actually happened the day before Beatrice was killed, not the same day like she originally claimed. 
So I made a snap judgment when I started looking into this case. The first article that I read explained how Beatrice took water out to her brother in the field, turned to go home, and then all of a sudden he's the one running down the road screaming about how some mysterious foreigner murdered his sister in the middle of the family's cornfield in the middle of nowhere. And my immediate thought was, bullshit, the brother did it, right? That seems to be the conclusion that Eaton County reached as well. About a week into investigating the murder, they took 15-year-old Russell Hickox into custody as a witness and held him for almost two weeks. Can you imagine that today, taking a witness into custody for two weeks? That's wild. They grilled him day after day, took him back out to the field where his sister was murdered, and made him reenact the sequence of events multiple times, But eventually, they let him go. Russell's family and the community were adamant that he couldn't have done it. He was a sweet boy who loved his sister, and he was described by many as too flimsy to have committed such an act of brutality. Like, he literally wouldn't have been strong enough to pick up a 24-pound rock and bludgeon his sister over and over with it. But even after releasing Russell back into his parents' custody, Eaton County officials gave interviews to the State Journal about how they would likely, possibly, maybe be arresting him for murder soon. But they never fucking did. By the end of 1920, Eaton County closed the file on the murder of Beatrice Hickox, stating that if any more was to be done, it would have to be done by the state police. This was a huge change, of course, because originally they said they wouldn't sleep until they found the Slayer. And less than six months later, they were just like, ah, fuck it, we don't care. (laughs) So I kind of feel like my gut instinct was right on this one. And Russell Hickox killed his sister and the police knew he did it. But because it was 1920 and DNA wasn't a thing yet and there were no witnesses other than Russell and the crime scene had been trampled so there was no evidence and the entire community was staunchly supporting the little sister killer, they just kind of washed their hands of it. Technically, though, the murder of Beatrice Hickox is the oldest cold case in the area on record. Before we get into this last story, I need to thank our other sponsor for today's episode, Raycon. It's officially November, which means the holiday shopping season is afoot, and I've got a special offer for you on one of the hottest gift items out there, and a practical one at that, Raycon wireless earbuds. Because I am not just a podcaster, but also a podcast listener, I spend a lot of time with headphones on, and wireless earbuds just make life easier. I can be on my feet doing stuff around the shop or the house, not tethered to my phone or my laptop, either listening to my favorite podcasts or editing my own. I've been exclusively using my Raycon earbuds to listen back to and edit so dead since I got them several weeks back. With seamless Bluetooth pairing and a comfortable noise-isolating fit, you can start listening right away and keep listening for hours. The audio quality is amazing, comparable to what you get from other premium brands, except Raycon starts at half the price. The new everyday earbuds come with three new sound profiles to make sure everything you're listening to sounds its best with just the right amount of bass. The pure mode is great for podcast listening or like blues or instrumental music. The balanced mode is also great for podcast listening, but it's also really good for like rock music, heavy metal. And then bass mode is perfect for hip hop, EDM, reggae. 
Raycon offers eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life before needing to be charged. There's also a built-in mic so you can take calls on your earbuds at the press of a button. This holiday season, get your loved ones something they can use for calls or music, work or play, at home or on the go. Or pick up a pair for yourself. Trust me, you're going to use them every day. Bonus, they'll make my voice sound but a smooth. Visit buyraycon.com, that's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N.com slash so dead today to unlock exclusive deals up to 20% off your order. But hurry, because this offer is available for a limited time only and you don't want to miss it. That's buyraycon.com slash so dead to unlock up to 20% off your Raycons. Again, buyraycon.com slash so dead. All right, time for our final cold case. This one takes twists and turns that nobody saw coming, myself especially. (laughs) People love to talk about the good old days and how much safer everything used to be, but I think that we all know there was nothing safe about the 1970s. There were serial killers literally everywhere, including here in Michigan, including, maybe, one in the Lansing area. This is a developing story with lots of moving parts, some of which I've actually given you before without knowing I was doing it. But for the sake of this story, it starts in East Lansing in the early 1970s with the disappearances of two 19-year-old co-eds six months apart, both named Diane, both petite with blue eyes and long brown hair parted down the middle. The first Diane to go missing was Diane Osinski, a psychology major at Michigan State University. Originally from Hamtramck, where her family owned a popular bar-slash-restaurant, Diane decided to spend the summer of 1972 in East Lansing, even though she wasn't taking summer classes. She lived at a rooming house on Grove Street with a few other girls that was owned by a young married couple. She'd been looking for a summer job with no luck, and then around 9.30 on the morning of July 24th, she received a phone call from a strange man about a babysitting job. Now, I don't know how this guy got Diane's number. I'm assuming that she left, you know, flyers on community bulletin boards with those little pull tabs or something, but I'm not sure. Diane's roommates recalled her being excited in a good way during the phone call. She hung up, she got dressed in some dark slacks, a light blouse, and she left the house around 11 a.m. in a great mood, happy about the opportunity to finally make some quick cash. Nobody saw her get into a car or anything. She didn't have her own vehicle to drive there. She just kind of walked away. They just remembered her almost like skipping out the door and down the street. She wasn't planning to be gone long. She left her checkbook, her glasses, her prescriptions, all of her personal belongings except for her purse and the clothes on her back. She was never seen alive again. It seemed almost too movie-like. A pretty young co-ed lured out of her apartment by a phone call from a stranger, then disappearing into thin air. But this wasn't a movie. It was her family's worst nightmare. An extensive search for Diane turned up no leads. A reward offered turned up no leads. The five foot three, 110-pound college junior with a warm and friendly personality had simply vanished. And she wouldn't be the only one. Just months later, on February 22, 1973, it happened again. 
19-year-old Diane Littlefield, a Lansing native, was staying at the Birchfield Apartments in East Lansing where her boyfriend, 25-year-old Martin Locatelli, lived. Martin arrived home from his job working the night shift at the Oldsmobile plant at about 7.45 a.m., talked briefly to Diane, and then went to sleep. When he woke up around 3 o'clock that afternoon, Diane was gone. Just like Diane Osinski, she'd left all of her personal belongings behind, including her purse and identification. And just like Diane Osinski, she was a petite brunette with blue eyes, described by friends and family as kind, well-liked, and not the type of girl who went out looking for trouble. On May 9th, 1973, so nine months after Diane Osinski disappeared and three months after Diane Littlefield disappeared, two young men out mushroom hunting at Rose Lake Conservation Area in Bath, which is not far from East Lansing at all, only about 10 miles, saw something out of place in a heavily wooded area. One of the men walked over to the item and realized that it was a pair of Levi's, and then he realized that those Levi's were attached to a body. Police contacted both the Osinski and Littlefield families and told them that they did not know which Diane they'd found, but they were pretty sure it was one of them. Using dental records, officials identified the body as that of Diane Osinski. Diane Littlefield turned up a few weeks later. Alive and well, living in Duxburg, Massachusetts. She hadn't been kidnapped or harmed. She just decided to leave town and start a new life without telling anyone. She'd hitchhiked to Florida, then to Massachusetts, and she was discovered when she tried to get a certified document at the Duxburg clerk's office. The clerk recognized her name and contacted the East Lansing Police Department, who contacted Diane's family. Not sure how all that turned out, but what a dick move, dude. Seriously. So Diane Littlefield was simply a runaway. I mean, well, she was 19, so I guess not a runaway, but you know what I mean. Diane Osinski, on the other hand, was murdered by an unknown assailant, and her case had parallels to yet another local case, one that we have talked about before. In the Grand Ledge Slayer episode earlier this season, I briefly mentioned the murder of Irene Waters, but let's recap it just because I have a terrible memory, so I'm sure some of you do as well. On August 19, 1972, less than a month after Diane Osinski was lured from her home by a strange phone call, the same thing happened to 58-year-old Irene. At about 5 o'clock that morning, she got a phone call at the Lansing apartment that she shared with her elderly mother on Seymour Street, if you're curious. A strange man informed her that the doctor's office she worked for was on fire and her help was needed to salvage the files that were pulled from the wreckage. Irene told her mom about the call. The phone ringing obviously woke them both up and her mom was like, you know, no, I do not like this. This sounds super suspicious. Please stay here. But Irene said, I'll be fine. I'm a grown woman. Duty calls. And she left the apartment. She was not fine. As you may remember, there was a man waiting for her in the back seat of her car. When she got in, he attacked, stabbing her several times and leaving her dead. A witness who'd heard Irene's screams saw her killer running from the scene and was able to give a description of the man. The description was suspiciously similar to both that of the Grand Ledge Slayer, which is why we've talked about this before, and a man that was kidnapping and raping women in the Lansing area at the time. 
Despite an exhaustive investigation during which several suspects were questioned and released, the murder of Irene Waters remains unsolved. Where's that wild twist I promised you? Right fucking here, so hold on to your butts. While some of these cases have since been solved, a lot of women in the Lansing area fitting a similar description were kidnapped, often in broad daylight, and then murdered by men who fit a similar description. And at the time, police were pretty sure they had a serial killer on their hands. This is a whole big thing that I'm purposely being like a little bit vague about for a number of reasons that I really can't disclose at the moment. But while I was researching the murder of Diane Osinski, I found this article in the June 12th, 1973 Lansing State Journal that blew my mind. I have to read it to you, like verbatim, and then I'll explain. The headline reads, Woman Reports Foiling Kidnap Attempt. A 20-year-old woman told police she was abducted on East Kalamazoo Monday night by a man who asked directions and then pulled a gun on her. She said she escaped after he lost control of the car on State Road near Wood Road, north of the city. Lansing Detective Richard Cook said police believe this attempted kidnapping has the same overtones as those involving other area young women abducted and later found murdered. Sally Mae Pazitka said she was walking on the north side of Kalamazoo, going west between Jones and Holmes around 7.30 p.m. when a man in a medium green car with a dirty white interior... Interior? Interior asked directions. As she paused and drew closer to answer, he drew a pistol into view and pulled her into the car, she said. She told police that they drove north out of the city with the man trying to pull her across the seat closer to him. She said he drove at high speeds along State Road until he hit some gravel, lost control, and had to jam on the brakes to stop. When he hit the brakes, she jumped out and ran. She said he did not try to catch her. She ran to a nearby house, but no one was home. Then she ran along State Road until she met a woman who took her home. Police said the man is white, between 35 and 40 years of age. He has a stocky build and sandy hair. He was wearing a reddish-brown print shirt on a white background, brown slacks. Police said he has a mustache and fairly thick, curly hair. Detective Cook said Miss Pazitka matches the physical description of Diane Osinski, a 19-year-old MSU student whose skeleton was found in the Rose Lake Wildlife Center northeast of the city last month. Her description is also similar to that of Don Magyar, 20, kidnapped from an Owasso shopping center and found dead in a field some weeks later. And if you remember, Danny told Don's story way back in season one. Mrs. Betty Jean Goodrich, 43, a small blonde housewife, was abducted from the Meyer Thrifty Acres parking lot on West Saginaw last August and found dead the next day in a field near Hastings. I have not told you guys about this one yet, but how fucking scary, right? Detective Cook pointed out that in each case, the women were either picked up off the street or in a shopping center. It is important that if anyone saw the car or the suspect on Kalamazoo between Jones and Holmes to contact us, he said. This may be the first lead we have on any of the others. This may be the first lead we have on any of the others. Please remember this line. 
Detective Cook said that any calls the police receive on the hotline will be treated confidentially. Okay, so why is this article so earth-shattering? Because it fucking is. Sally Mae Pazitka, the one that got away, the witness police thought could be the key to solving the murders of Don Magyar, Diane Osinski, Betty Jean Goodrich, all of these pretty petite women who were being kidnapped and murdered around Lansing in the 1970s. She is my kid's grandmother. (laughs) My children's grandmother, my ex-mother-in-law, my ex-husband's mother, who I have known since I was 15 years old for over half of my life. When I tell you that I started literally screaming, like top of my lungs screaming when I found this article, I still cannot. It's been weeks and I still cannot process it. This is why it is so important to keep talking about these cases, even if they've been sitting cold for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, because you just never know who in your life might have information. They might know something that they don't even realize is important. You just never fucking know. I didn't know. We didn't know this. None of us knew this until I found it in a random-ass newspaper from 1973. And I know what you guys want to know. Have I asked her about it? I have not yet. So she and I aren't, like, not speaking, but we also don't really talk, if that makes sense. So there's no animosity or no reason why we wouldn't speak. We just haven't in a very long time. So I feel like it would be weird to call her about this. But I will. I'll ask her about it someday, um, or I'll have my kids ask her about it, see what she remembers. She does have some health issues that may affect how and if she really even remembers much about what happened. But you (laughs) you guys, seriously. So as I have been lately because I'm just overwhelmed and overworked because my boss, who is myself, is a total asshole – Um, I was last minute, so I first talked about the Diane Osinski case at a presentation I did at the Lansing Library, the downtown Lansing Library, a few weeks back. And day of the presentation, I was doing some last minute research, and that is when I found this. And I didn't have time to freak out, and I didn't have time to let my whole day go off course because of this revelation. So I just had to take that information, pack it up with me with my books and my signing pen, and go to the library. So the poor, poor people that came to that presentation, I was so discombobulated and so distracted because I was freaking out. I am still freaking out. Like, what are the fucking chances? All right, that is it for today. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. Today's sources were just a whole lot of old newspaper articles. So big thanks to newspapers.com for that. Also, I want to mention real quick that my pal, Tobin T. Book, just put out a new book titled Cold Case Michigan. Some of these stories that we've talked about today are in the book. Uh, So if you want to read about more cold cases from Michigan, now you can. And of course, I do sell the book at Dead Time Stories. Liquid cheese for today. I feel like I already told you mine. Like I, 
I told you about how my ex-mother-in-law might be the key to cracking the case of a secret serial killer in Lansing from the 70s, which is fucking wild to say it out loud. So what I want you guys to do, I'm going to post it in the Soda discussion group. I want you to tell me about your big family secret or like a wild revelation that came out in a crazy way the way this one did for us. Um, I want to hear them all. Love that shit. Love it. The next episode of So Dead is the season three finale, and we're going to end this year like we started it in the city of Kalamazoo. So tune in for that, and then I'll see you guys next February. Fuck. For as shit as this year was, it really did go fast, didn't it? In the meantime, though, make sure you're keeping up with me on social media. I am most active on the So Dead Facebook page in the So Dead discussion group on Facebook. And then, of course, on TikTok under Scream Queen 517. Until next time, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks. Uh.